Hi Generation Barn listeners, it's Will here. Uh, we hope you had a magnificent Christmas and a very happy new year, no matter where you are in the world. Uh, Neil and I have had a, a quick break. We're refreshed and ready to bring you some more uh, enlightening and exciting content for 2018. But here's something we prepared earlier. Uh, just before Christmas, Neil and I sat down with Simon Hogan. Some of you might remember Simon as a former AFL footballer for Geelong Cats. But arguably his biggest impact on Australian society and sport has been his rather public and candid battle with depression. I'm very excited about this episode because Simon is not only a fantastic person, but he also speaks about mental illness in such a candid, uh, honest and really insightful way. We cover many bases in the episode you're about to listen to, including Simon's time at Geelong and why he quit professional sport. But perhaps even more pertinently, we discuss the ongoing battle Australian society is having with mental health, uh, what we need to change and what is changing, and of course, uh, Simon's ongoing recovery from depression. Simon and I even have a bit of a discussion about our own issues, and the tenderness that Neil shows is something quite remarkable. Uh, we really hope you enjoyed the, uh, the episode you're about to listen to. Uh, please like, share, comment, uh, message us, whatever you want to do. Uh, like our Facebook page because we reckon we've got a whole lot of fantastic content coming up and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Generation Balm on this beautiful, uh, balmy Wednesday afternoon. Of course, you might be listening to this on a, a miserable uh, Monday Melbourne afternoon, but we're here anyway on a Wednesday. Neil, how are you doing? Very good. Is it Wednesday, is it? It's, yeah, it's, it's Wednesday, yeah. yeah I know very it's balmy, funny. I know that bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's helter swelter out there, isn't it? But um, anyway, we're in a nice air-conditioned room and uh, today I thought we'd start the show by talking about... Is this... Uh, fiction piece, this short story fiction piece in the New Yorker magazine called Cat Person, um, which, you know, really, it didn't really reflect what the story was about. I was expecting like a, a man who had a fetish for, for cats or something like that. But anyway. No, I, was, I was waiting for some <laughs> twist ending. Yeah, that's right. Written, but that was, it was uh, nicely written, I will say. It was, it was. Uh, the thing is, it didn't seem that uh, out of the ordinary as a story, you know, like a, a lot of different fictional pieces that... Um, cover a lot of different topics but for some reason it's absolutely blown up on your favorite uh medium social media i haven't noticed uh, that no <laughs> you wouldn't have i got the message from my sister my older sister kate uh who is a big social media user not that i can i'm not pretending to not be but uh all of a sudden this 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 story has taken on a life of its own and it's all about gender politics and uh, who is, is the cat person a repulsive figure, who's, his name is Robert, and Margot was this 22-year-old college, 20-year-old college sophomore. Um, and all of a sudden, it's, it's become this story that's all about the Me Too movement, which you probably wouldn't know either, but it's about women who've come forward with stories of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and it's been quite, um, quite amazing to see how many have actually um, told their own stories. But I suppose, yeah, the impressions of the story first. Well, it's, when you... I was unaware of the social media element of it for obvious reasons. But I sort of read it, and I, yeah, I, thought it was, I was intrigued by it, and I thought it was a very simple relationship thing that got to a point, uh, but it wasn't that satisfactory, so it didn't go any further, like, mm. you know, as things do. Yeah. I didn't really... You know, I could sort of feel there was something in there that wasn't... You know, that wasn't I wasn't that comfortable with in the way she wrote it. She wrote it. I thought she wrote it really well. Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't that. I didn't feel that strongly about it in terms of you know the the relationship with gender politics. Is it was it all wrong? Is this this stuff happening is a bad thing? I, I assume it's not a good thing because it, the relationship didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel apart from the last few words, which as you read, which was kind of what what they're probably offended by more than anything else that. Because the guy didn't didn't get uh, any response to the relationship, yeah, he, he yeah. felt that she must have been there must have been something wrong with her. Yeah. Um, but if you left that bit out, I, I couldn't see that it was that offensive. I, I found that as well. Like, I mean, uh, my we're first both, we're both yeah. men, I suppose. That, well, that's yeah. the thing. I knew receiving it, the message from my sister that there was something mm-hmm. uh, bigger than just <laughs> the fact that it was a story about a relationship. Um, but. Um, 
I mean, I found with the story that it was a really confused tale of two people uh, and the text messaging, I think that was like the, the thing that's very different with relationships now. You're in contact, you can be in contact constant, constantly. And that was one thing, there was just a difference in in how uh, you know they got yeah, on the, the via... Perceived, the perceived yeah. relationship via text was quite strong and powerful, but then the face-to-face was disappointing in the end. Wasn't exactly it? right, Which exactly right. In, in itself, is, actually, I like that outcome because yeah, I think face-to-face <laughs> is much more important than that and then the other side of it. But. Well, the, the writer, uh, Kristen Rupenian, uh, there was a there was an interview post the, the story being released and the question was, what is Margot wishing for when she imagines the boy with whom she could share the story of this encounter? Why does she decide no such boy existed and never would? And her explanation to that was something around, uh, but for Margot, it's true too that one of the reasons she can't ever imagine sharing this particular experience with a partner is that she herself doesn't understand it. Or So how can she explain it? That's true in a way. And also there's the whole element of the fact that she'd never find a uh, person, a boy she could explain it to who would understand like a heterosexual boy because they're always told to, you know, yeah. there's a sexual implication there. So I suppose that's what I think there was definitely the, I mean, we're coming from a place that we're, we're not women, but I think it's the vulnerability of being a woman and going on any sort of date or taking a chance in any sort of relationship. Yeah, I think yeah. it's that vulnerability of women to say, well, if they, if they treat the relationship like, per se, a man does, mm. then there's danger in that for them, yes. in a way. Yeah. But, but they do retain and probably seek the right to be able to make those decisions. Yes. And then when they do, and it doesn't turn out right, well, we're going to blame gender politics. And, and I kind of I get it. I think it's probably not as, not as simple as, as I would like it to be. But it was a really, it was a beautifully written story. Yeah. Well, I didn't yeah. quite, wasn't quite as offended as I should be, probably. <laughs> Hope Kate's not listening. <laughs> no, I think she would be, but hi, Kate, if you are. Um, yeah, but it is, it's worth reading for any listener out there. Yeah. Just looking for a good piece of fiction, it's great to... Um, but the gender politics at the moment is, it's gone mad, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's gone, like, it, and, and it's probably necessary, and we all understand that, but it is, it's probably the um, flavour of the month, in a sense. Well, I think that's right, and there's really a lot being illuminated. Um, you know, there's I mean, even Donald Trump, who's there's about 16 accusers who are who are lining up to say well, that. We're all he's... hoping that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not sure we're hoping it's true about Jeffrey Rush. Uh, and we will. Well, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But we will link that um, that story in the show uh, notes when you download the podcast, so you can have a look at it and judge for yourself. Um, anyway, moving on, we have. Uh, a guest in the studio. Um, his name is Simon Hogan, uh, former Geelong AFL footballer. But uh, we always do this at, uh, when we introduce a guest. Um, how would you describe what you do and who you are? I guess what I do now is very different to what I did at Geelong. Um, but probably I won't even go into what I do from a job sense, but I guess who I am is someone who... Uh, just on the topic of what you're talking about, is now able to sort of show more vulnerability than I used to be able to, and I'm more confident in myself, um, and I'm lucky to be surrounded by some great women who have helped develop that in me. So that doesn't really tell you at all what I do and (laughs) who I am, but that's that's what I've gone with. It's interesting, that whole notion of vulnerability, in that I use it to to reflect on, selfishly, on on Trent Cotchin this year, he came in, you know, we've all, we've all seen Trent running around as the captain of Richmond, like carrying the weight of the world on the shoulders. Oh, it's all, you know, like it, it's like it's too hard because we're not playing well enough and it's kind of, he takes the responsibility, it's all his fault. And he's someone, and I think I know, a couple of people have convinced him that you only need to be yourself. You don't need to be all of those other things. And I know that you've, you've suffered fairly seriously in, in, in this area and he probably hasn't suffered to that degree, but he has responded in that way and the positive of him, the way he presented himself, the way he led his teammates here, and the way he played even towards the end in the finals was just amazing. And it was because he said, well, I'm not necessarily perfect, I'm just gonna do my best. And everyone said, well, that's fine with us, move on. Rather than trying to be something that you're not or do something you're not. And it, and it really did, he used that term vulnerability regularly about it because that, that's what he said, well, we've got to accept my vulnerability. Well, not a bad thing to do. 
because that, that whole notion of you know stoicism and toughen up and you know don't show any yeah, emotion yeah, yeah. 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 she don't work all that well no no and that um, some of the stories I haven't read a lot of football media in the last probably couple of years but um, I did follow some of Trent's stories and, and it was great to see and, and the results obviously excellent for Richmond um, but I think for the broader male community it was also a really positive message yeah. yeah. Now, just going back to uh, when you were, I suppose you were drafted in 2006, but um, I've read that you had other interests, well, as we all do, other firm interests uh, for your post-schooling uh, life than just football. So. Football for me was very late on the scene in terms of uh, being a possib- possibility. Um, I was, I guess for, for reasons of, um, I'm not quite sure about what, what they were at the time, but I was keen on doing medicine and had an offer to, to um, do undergrad med, which was what I would have done if football hadn't have come up. Um, and it's been really interesting to reflect on that. That's 10 years ago now, and I think the only reason I wanted to do medicine was because I was able to get in. Yeah. Um, there's probably, yeah. <laughs> it's probably been a good thing that I got drafted and ended up going down a different path post-football because it probably wouldn't have been the right thing for me anyway. Yeah, and when you were drafted, you drafted in the year, same year with... Joel Selwood and Tom, and Tom Hawkins. Yep. But did you feel pressure going into the Geelong uh, system or were you just sort of like, this is amazing? I'm... I guess there's always pressure, but I did go in knowing I'm not going to play for a couple of years. I was, I think I was 57 yeah, or 59. He wasn't, he wasn't heavy. <laughs> no, no, I was, um, you know, plenty of, plenty of jokes straight, straight away about the, uh, the body I was bringing in. But I guess that took a bit of pressure off uh, initially, but then my personality and my competitive nature meant that I was pretty desperate to make it work, and and also had the feeling that I'd not taken down the, the gone down the medicine path. So I kind of it was a bit of a sacrifice. You had, you had to succeed almost. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. For for me to be comfortable with, yeah. uh, I didn't see it as a choice. I was always going to um, give the footy side a crack, but wanted to do everything I could to make it work. Yeah, and what were your impressions of Simon when he, he came into the club, Neil? Oh, I know, we thought he was uh, a good athlete, smart little player. We, we thought he had a genuine chance. Yeah, he really did. But he was he was very light. <laughs> he needed to do some <laughs> work. But, but at that stage, uh, the development of the, the team, they, we had a relatively mature group of players, and so we didn't need him to play initially. But no, we, we thought he'd be a pretty good player. Yeah, so, I mean, this, uh, for anyone uh, who's listening and doesn't know your story... Um, I suppose the first couple of years at the club were they relatively fruitful in developing and yeah I think the first three years were, were quite uh, fruitful and I guess the pressure built each year as you sort of start I started to put on the weight and started to play some decent VFL footy and then um, in my third year started to get a bit of a look in and played a few AFL games and then yeah you sort of I guess my approach to it starts to change and um, it became more important as those options came up and then to go on to I guess the probably the second half to separate my six years at Geelong uh, was at times a, a difficult time from a mental health perspective I think it was my fourth year where it really came up for the first time and, and that was on the back of having a really good pre-season setting the bar really high for myself um, wanting to make it work and probably not having the skills to deal with the pressure adequately. Yeah. Looking back on it now, now you've been through it a lot. Was there there anything intrinsic in our program that kind of contributed to your problem? You know, that might be seen to be hard. I don't mean to blame someone else for what happened to you, but it's a high-performance environment you know, and old, the old style put the pressure on people to perform and that you're better off finding out if they're going to fail now than later and all that sort of did, did we was there much, I know footy's changed a reasonable amount over the years but did that contribute do you think was, is there anything we could have done that would have made it easier I'm not sure if there is anything that could have been done differently I think the support that, was that a, wasn't a setup question I'm quite serious yeah no and, and it is a very, it, I think it's more my I guess looking back in hindsight, it's a lot easier. But I think for me, some of the issues that came through would have come through at some point in my life in a high-pressure situation. And um, 
the football environment certainly has some extra elements that aren't related to the Geelong environment, but the you know, uh, lack of willingness to show vulnerability, not knowing your place in a team when you're on the fringe, um, a whole range of factors that Geelong couldn't have controlled. Uh, and I think if I had have had more insight into how to deal with certain situations and have coping strategies as a 16-year-old, that would have made more of a difference than anything Geelong could have done. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 an, it's almost kind of part of the, part of what's going to happen to you, isn't it? It's a matter of how, how, you, how you cope with that. In an elite yeah, in, sporting environment. Yeah, and it's yeah, not even just yeah. in a sporting environment. You know, yeah, you know, of course. In, like, you know, in medicine, all, all of a sudden the pressure's on. Absolutely. Yeah. How would you have gone? Um, yeah. yeah. So as a young, like 15 or 16, did you have a, did you show any signs of um, depression or no, angst? Or, yeah? I mean, I was probably um, a perfectionist from early on, but yeah. I wouldn't have recognised that as a 15, 16-year-old. <laughs> yeah. um, growing up in Warrnambool, I was lucky to be able to be quite good at most things. You know, a country town like that, focused around sport. And of course. That came quite naturally to me. And then you sort of, I was doing well at school. And so I kind of, I guess, formed this view that well, I set high standards because of that. And um, maybe it would have helped to have had some sort of experience earlier and start developing those <laughs> strategies but, you but can't who, wish yeah, that exactly can't predict that yeah exactly right and I, yeah so it's, I think things have changed in the last 10-15 years where schools do do things around um, well-being and mindfulness and sporting clubs do more of it and that's yeah fantastic and I think that would have potentially helped but until you have the experience you probably don't value it you definitely don't value yeah. it the same yeah and what were the uh, indicators that things weren't right during that fourth or fifth year at uh, Geelong? Uh, I guess there's a number of physical symptoms that are mostly around just fatigue and yep. not being able to get the same output on on training track or mentally not being able to concentrate and not yeah, not being able to sleep and I lost my appetite, which was a big worry when I was so uh, skinny and trying <laughs> yeah. to put on all this yeah. weight. So, um, I mean, the one thing that then overrides all that is your thinking patterns and how negative things become but mm. for the first well definitely the first experience that's something I thought I'll deal with that I can um, change my thinking you know I've been able to do this my whole life so um, yeah all those factors didn't initially lead to me seeking help yeah which is obviously a big part of it yeah and you get caught in that sort of that whirlwind uh, tornado where you're just like you're trying to fix yourself and in the end that just keeps sort of and trying to look yeah. normal is probably the main yeah, thing yeah. trying to keep up an um, image that you're doing fine and partic- and that's you know one factor that maybe other work environments don't have compared to footy where it's very obvious if someone's not yes at yeah. training or not um, I guess performing as they should and mm. the performance pressure comes and yeah yeah and uh, Neil what were your what were your thoughts when Simon came. Yeah, well, like even, even then, we we thought we had a, you know, we cared about our players and we knew all about them. But from in my position, it was someone came and said Simon's struggling a bit. Oh, what's that? Oh, he's you know he's um, he's struggling with a bit of depression, mental health issues. Oh shit, what are we going to do? It was almost like it's because you're so focused on, you know, picking the team, playing the team, everyone performs, and you got this poor bugger who's not. So it was really then just a matter of, okay, let's, so how can we help him? What can we do? And, and it's almost just, it's taking the pressure off having to perform, helping them with the problem. Then within the back of our mind is hoping that, oh, he'll come good and it'll be okay. Um, but fortunately, we've got people now, we've got reasonably good uh, support in our PDM and wellbeing areas and sports psych and all that sort of stuff, or our psychology, not so much sports psychology, pure psychology, much better than we ever did. Now we're we're much better equipped for it and we're kind of almost ready for it. Mm-hmm. And even here last year, we did, you know, most of the coaches and a lot of the staff did a, you know, a couple of, a few days on how, how you, what mental health means, you know, what you can do about it, how you can see what's going on, etc., etc. So we know a lot more about it than we did, but, it, but we still don't know that much. Because no it's, it's, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. it's very much an individual thing. 
what we do know is that we need to help. We need to put our hand and take the pressure off and try and do something to help them. And I think I think we do that. Footy clubs do that pretty well now. But I, I don't think we've solved the problems. We, we had a really interesting um, challenge last year with Chris Yarren who yeah, had some problems, and, and yeah. it was up. We had to take a deep breath and say, "What? How can we help this bloke the most?" You know, it would have been, it would have been easy. He didn't play last year. God, let's let's just get let's just get rid of him. But we didn't want to do that. We wanted to give him every opportunity, and in the end, the best opportunity for him was to go back to Perth to to get himself organised, and we. We allowed that whole time to, to get through for him to do that. So we were actually quite proud of the fact that we, we, we didn't make the simple decisions. So we look, don't look like he's going to play, don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's what that, that's our responsibility to make sure that sort of thing happens. Well, is it relatively recent where that change has come where football is oh, yeah, so much so, more yeah. to being in a, an elite sporting environment and just football oh, and performance? It's not that long ago that it, it was genuinely that, that whole notion of toughen up, get on with it. All that matters has been able to play this week, um, and we've become much, much, much better at that. Much better at it. But, that, but that's unfortunately that's part of the environment where the toughest people are the best people, is what we always used to say. But I'm really interested to see so much um, publication lately has been on the style of coaching and the style of encouragement, which I'm really pleased with. That. And, Mostly because I've always believed it's been the right way, yeah. but that old way of just driving people and being tough on them, being hard on them, yeah. it doesn't really work. What's it? The, the fear, um, fear factor stuff. The carrot and the stick. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 nearly everything you read now is about well, we encourage them to play well. It's a positive mindset environment. It's this. It's that. It's it's empathy. It's all these other things which wouldn't have been said that often about some of the old style coaches. I wouldn't have thought. But. And I guess that's the the attitude change across the whole club that is being key from my now outside perspective to what's made it a much better environment for this sort of stuff. I think it was definitely a learning curve for a huge one for me and for everyone mm-hmm. at Geelong to go through what um, what we went through. But the I guess the whole club perhaps wasn't as across it as it would be now. And I know just thinking of coaches and um, you know, there's probably people who I was reluctant to see during that time and there was a handful of people who I knew I could go to and um, mm. I guess it'd be it'd make a huge difference if you knew the whole club was sort of on board with the same yeah. amount of yeah. level of understanding. And, um, I think I think we're getting there. Yeah. yeah. I think we are. So That's sort of uh, with your retired, uh, what year did you retire? 2012. Yeah, and the decision to actually come to that retirement, how difficult was that for you? Um, probably not that difficult in the end. I think I was probably grappling with it for a couple of years, to okay. be honest. So I remember, um, again, back to sort of perhaps some people not understanding as well as others, having a discussion with a, with a coach at one point around, um, you know, not sure if football's for me, and this might be my third or fourth year prior to sort of anything um, on the mental health side happening. And I think the response then was kind of a, well, what are you doing here? There's people who want to be in this environment. And um, and that really stuck with me for a long, still sticks with me now. Um, so I think from that point, I was kind of grappling with if this is the right thing for me and still trying to play and still trying to then try to deal with some uh, mental health issues. Uh, There's a lot, a lot going on. And I decided actually at the end of... 2011 I can't remember the exact timelines but basically went to the club saying I'm not gonna um, pursue another contract at the end of 2012 and I guess had an agreement to play out in the in the VFL and take up a leadership role and um, try and help develop some other other things rather than really focusing on trying to play AFL yeah and that was when the huge relief sort of came and um, that last year was my first year was in, was definitely enjoyable, but probably that last year was extremely enjoyable from what I'd gone through to what I was able to offer other players in sort of that learning process around what I'd been through and, and getting back to enjoying footy. So um, that last year, <coughs> couldn't yeah. have asked for anything more. Yeah, so it probably just got to a point where anything outside of um, being in that system was going to bring you at least some sort of solace. and Yeah. I guess 
the other things that I could be doing just started to outweigh yeah. the being in the system and um, yeah, there's the obvious things you want to do like travel without having to think about going for a run and doing weights and um, uni I wanted to really finish off some uni and I was quite keen to try and be in that system while I'm still young and not the old yeah, back sure. of the room that's, yeah, asking, uh, asking questions yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of factors for that point in time um, and six years was, was an amazing six years from a self-development point of view and it's an incredibly unique environment to be an elite athlete so um, it's done its time and it was yeah it couldn't have asked for anything more so just sort of fast forwarding you sort of went public with your battle and um, I mean what was the process there I suppose what, what was the uh, stimul- uh, the catalyst for you actually well, that was really, about it. was really the turning point for, I guess, my recovery with bumps along yeah. the way. Yeah. But um, that was, I guess, it came out when, as a club, and, and my family and I sort of decided to take some proper time off and go and get some really active help. So I uh, was admitted myself into the Melbourne Clinic, which was one of the scariest things I've ever done. Yeah. But definitely one of the best things I've done to really prioritise getting myself better and you know you can always sort of say that playing footy wasn't a priority in the weeks months beforehand but until we sort of made that clear cut decision to step away um, that was a huge weight off my shoulders Yeah, and taking that time away not many players knew at that point what was going on people probably had suspicions and but I sort of only told the close mates but stepping away for a while meant we had to not had to I wanted to tell everyone what was going on and Joel um, Selwood and Tom Hawkins were great at sort of delivering that message on my behalf and um, I guess keeping me informed and linked in with the group mm. but that was also the time to go to the media obviously I didn't have a big media profile but yeah, yeah. Um, was it really it was something I was glad that happened in the end again initially frightening yeah. to uh, have it all out in the open and you know great to get all these well, well wishing mes- messages but um, at the time you don't really want to be talking to too many people and um, ask them to deal with what was happening so we're sort of we're kind of accepting that we don't really know what this is all about so what what's the bigger picture like should should we like whoever we are the government or someone or whatever should we be doing more about this when it like it I don't know what I mean by that question well, I do know what I mean by that question but like what 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 more can we actually do are you talking in a sense of just in society and, yeah yeah because yeah, like, it's so it's all of a sudden that's it's so prevalent now mm. and get, you know a lot of young people particularly suffering this and we're saying we don't really know what it is but they'll be okay or we'll get through somehow is there, is there more we can do somehow i think there is more we can do but i also know that there's things that are happening that just don't get the profile that they should so um and i will and i've had these chats around you know, getting people involved in proactive ways of you know workshops or doing things where they can sort of learn more from a younger age and there are things happening but there's more organizations that do things and I guess people just think of Beyond Blue and Headspace and um, fantastic organisations, but there's so many other uh, research centres that are doing incredible work into the treatment and sort of Mm. um, prevention of this in the first place. And then there's the other side of the openness to discuss it and that sort of the the role of the media in making it okay. I guess we are really getting somewhere in a lot of ways, aren't we? But you just... It just feel as though there needs to be a, a better solution. But. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to cut in here because I thought I should introduce uh, the fact that Simon and I both, um, I actually came into contact with you uh, after I got back from London and I was having some, uh, I was when I was in London I had severe anxiety and uh, also depression and I, it was actually one year ago today that I wrote a piece of for my blog, so a lot smaller scale and going public. <laughs> yep. but, um, and I just remembered that relief because I'd, I'd gone through this stuff for six years before that. But that relief of actually letting people know and going, well, at least that's a, a weight off my shoulders. And I'm sure you felt a very similar thing. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, a very frightening experience, but yeah, a week for me personally, probably a week after everything went public, I was in a completely different space to what I was beforehand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that yeah. The, the thing is, with what you're saying is, um, mental illness is extremely uh, individualized. Yeah, it's, so, so, it's so personal. When I'm your father, I know that you've got some issues, but I don't really know. I don't. Yeah. You know, like it's. Yeah. Because you, we're, we're forever trying to normalise and don't, you know, like, I'll be okay, which, of course, you have to. Mm. But sometimes it makes it hard for people to help too, I guess, doesn't it? Well, it does, but I suppose with uh, Simon, it's changed how people interact with you. And I don't know if, if, if people knowing your battle, a new person met you, knows your backstory, do you think they would approach you differently to how they would have? I think they... <laughs> Some people definitely do, and that's it's been an interesting. I mean, I'm five years out of the system now, so there's uh, there's two parts to that that people associate with AFL, which can have its positive implications and yep. and not so. <laughs> and then the mental health side of things. I guess when I first left the system, it was I felt like it was important for people to know, particularly employees and that sort of stuff, because I wanted to feel supported. And um, whereas now five years on it's kind of a point where people don't know unless you know they know my past roles but they may not even know I was a footballer let alone the mental health side of things and that's been a really positive thing for me that I'm I guess I was worried about being defined yeah with course the mental health issues in there so as that's starting to come become less and less it's a really empowering kind of process I'm going through now yeah do you think uh with the stigma reducing, what we hope is reducing, um, do you think more people will actually take on the role of being like a spokesperson? Because it seems there's still a reluctance to go, well, I'm, I have a mental illness and I think quite a lot of people understand that it doesn't go away. It's for life, really. Mm. But do you think with the stigma reducing, there could be someone like an Alex Fasolo or... A... Yeah, and it's a tricky one with... You know, it's like you have to go through this experience to be a spokesperson, which yeah. I don't think is... There's no re- no reason why it can't be the other way, that people learn a great deal through being supporting someone through that and they become a spokesperson. I think that's kind of the next step for society to have... Mm. You don't have to be... Yeah, <laughs> great if you've had this experience and you're happy to, to speak about it and help other people, but shouldn't have to wait for that to happen for people to proactively put their hand up and help others yeah I'd, I'd like to see that yeah start yeah. to come into society so with um, your experience in football Neil and personally with your experience with uh, with me I suppose how has that uh, made you better equipped to deal with um, mental disorders in oh well people under because your... I've been involved with every year there's an ex next bunch of 18 year old kids yeah. I mean you, you've got you've seen so many different issues different kids different react different ways makes you understand people better I think that's what helps me rather than you know if, you, if you're just digging holes yeah um, so I see all that and, and I'm relative I think I'm relatively empathetic so I, that I do I think I get it I think I understand and I think I care about people so I've had a lot of experience in that to see what people need and hopefully I care enough to try and help most, but yeah. maybe I'm not helping you enough. <laughs> no, 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 you are, you are. <laughs> but um, I suppose yeah, and people are frightened, or not frightened, okay, a bit confronted if, they know, if they, they're approaching someone, but I suppose there's always a question, is there a right and wrong way about um, conversing with people who might have a history with mental illness? There's probably, there probably is a wrong way, but there's so many right ways yeah. to do it. Like, I mean, there's, I think having that empathetic approach is going to hold you in good stead and, and being someone to listen to someone who can, um, doesn't, I think, I think you mentioned it before, Neil, around, um, we haven't got to a point where we can solve it. And that's, I guess, the difficult part for people who haven't been through it, because it's not about, it's not about solving it. And that's the hard thing to yeah. to get through. And I know with in my experience, my parents just wanted to solve it and they were fantastic and my mum was organising all these things and it was great. But all she needed to do was listen to me and give me a hug and um, 
kind of empathise with, yeah. which, which she yeah. did a fantastic job of. But it's but that she was natural, to solve it, the natural so. reaction is to try and solve <laughs> it. So you have a you have a friend who's going through something, and you all you want to do is just fix the problem. And um, I guess the first thing is that it's not a problem; it's something you would rather not have to deal with. Yeah. But it's something that's managed, and um, we all have things that we we manage. It's not a problem that needs to be the overriding thing in your life, and it's just a management thing that rather than a solving thing that, that's probably the, the key thing for someone who... So I'll ask you a serious question now. So like, so if you can start playing footy now, given that you've, you've been through your self-management, could you and would you play footy now? Or is something like footy something that you would think is, maybe that's going to put me in a place that I'm not going to control well enough? I probably, I probably finished footy thinking that I associated that with depression and... Um, now I do feel like I would be better equipped. I definitely um, think I would be up for the, from a physical and ability point of view, of uh, going a different way there. But the, <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm really saying. Yeah. Say, say you could say all those things. Say you're draftable now, and knowing what you know, would would you say I reckon I can get through this? I'd be confident that I'd be in much better oh, place. I'm so pleased to hear that because that's what that's what I'm kind of you know, thinking where. You go through all this and then you say, oh, but I couldn't do that. And because cause playing, I mean, playing footy is not, well, it's not easy, but it ain't that hard in, in, when, when you yeah. know what it goes. So I'm really pleased to hear that. And that's, that's and I guess even now I've had to build up my post-footy Not, not that playing footy is a be-all and end-all. Like, <laughs> no, like no, that, but it's yeah. a good point because you talk about other <laughs> high-pressure jobs and yeah, of course. people know, need to know that they're able to take, yeah, to take on what their um, job is. And I think... For me, it's been a bit of a slow build where I'm now in a position of taking on some a lot more responsibility and I'm you know, working a lot longer hours and that sort of thing and that's because I feel like now I can. Couldn't have done that but, two years but ago. But you know, you know there's a support mechanism there that you, you, you need. Yeah. And you reckon you can do it, yeah. I so. mean, I, uh, I guess I, I saw my psychologist on Monday. I see him monthly and um, you know, I've got... That's one tool that I'll continue yeah. to use forever but there's lots of other tools that I've developed that would be applicable if I went back to footy or the stuff I'm doing now I feel um, better already it's important that we, we say well there are some solutions to these yeah. issues Look, whilst you say it's for life but you're not crook for life you're no, just saying, no, no, I understand yeah. how to deal with it and yeah. it's interesting to think of what is a mental you know, so I'm still taking in antidepressants, you know, t- tablets I take each morning and night, um, see a psychologist. From on paper, people might say, well, it's got a mental health issue. Yeah. Um, whereas I feel like I've been free of any mental health issue for the yeah, last you've got control four years. Control. Well, funnily enough, one, one of my really good mates was a, a recruiting bloke, Noel, Noel Jatkins, he won't mind me talking about it. And he, he worked in this high-pressure high area for, for years and done a fantastic job and he was working with us and he, and he became mentally ill. And he was, he was moribund. He was gone. He was couldn't get out of bed. Mm. He was terrible. And he had several shots at, you know, he, he, he could be, he would see it to speak for himself, but he had a lot of different goes at different drugs and then finally got the right sort of medication. And he's fine. Mm. He's, he is as normal as he's ever been. Yeah, yeah. It's, but it took a long time. Yeah. So it was yeah. really, it was, it was, for us, it was sort of confounding and really painful for us because the poor bugger he was struggling but he finished up and he's now if he, he'll listen to this at some point um, he's in fantastic position mm. but well, because of that so it was it's quite I mean that, that's the thing I mean medication still holds a stigma but it does work like I, yeah. t- I take antidepressants as well and I mean I've I've evened out a whole lot and I tried to get off them as soon as I got back from London because I, I, I was like oh, well you feel as though you're, you're why am I on antidepressants yeah. I'm a young man I've got to give it a go but they do, you know, like, and I got off them and I fell back into it, got back on them. And it's just one of those things. They do, they do work in treatment. You know, there, there is, there are more avenues now. Yes. Yeah. And I guess to, I guess, frame it for people yes. listening, that it's really <laughs> difficult, but the, the most difficult part is getting the right medication, as you alluded to, Neil. It's kind of a, I reckon it was at least oh, a 12-month yeah. period for me. <laughs> and then it's, and then you throw in, the um, side effects of some medication and the weaning off process and it's mm. a horrible process to go through that was yeah um, 
just <laughs> worst period of my life. I yeah. guess uh, from a, and and it's the same with getting a, a team of professionals to help. You may not like the first psychologist you see. You may I reckon I've seen eight or nine psychologists and probably five psychiatrists, and that was where I felt really lucky to have the support of the, the club to find really good people but it's a huge challenge and people I guess the message needs to be that it's okay if the first medication and the first um, psychologist doesn't work if there's lots of options and mm. it's a shitty process <laughs> but yeah um, you need to keep trying and that's, it'll work eventually that's the thing with life isn't it as well like uh, you know like you're gonna fail at things and you're gonna you're gonna muck up and the thing we've just got into with I suppose social media and the pursuit for perfection um, I think that really is a big um, that contributes in a huge way to young people growing up and going I'm not good enough or I'm not this and that and that actually mm. is a catalyst for mental illness it's almost yeah. an over awareness of what's possible and you're, and you're disappointed exactly yeah. you can build up yeah. the expectation yeah. that you're yeah, better exactly. in two weeks and that's <laughs> And I do that every time I train. I change something, and it's always um, yeah. very defeating. Yeah, it doesn't it, work out. Yeah, it is. I remember uh, when I first got onto my first lot of antidepressants, and anyway, it, it gave me all these side effects as well. And, and I think people don't who haven't taken antidepressants uh, probably don't understand. It takes about it can take four to six to eight weeks to kick in, and even mm. then, it can be very ineffective. It also has side effects that are really unpleasant. Um, a lot of dry mouth yep. stuff or sexual bed issues. <laughs> and bed sweats yep. and yep. dreams, a vivid dream. So it's it's really something that it, it does take you a while to to accept like this is a this is different, but it is eventually hopefully making you feel evened mm. out. Well, of, yeah. From what I can see, it works. So hang, <laughs> hang in there. That's all right. Yes, that's, that's a good message. But yeah, I suppose and that, that's ultimately the, it'll work. For, I mean, for us, we've both both accepted. Um, you know, we've, we've had an issue and we've taken steps to do that. But it does um, for young people out there. They can avoid what's happening to them for quite a while, and that's when I find when people fall into that rut and they don't um, deal with it. That's when things can get a lot more severe and a lot harder to actually get out of that hole. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The earlier, I mean, any research will say the earlier yeah. you can intervene, the, the better. But it is much easier said than done. And um, I guess that's the real positive in the societal changes in attitude that more and more people feel comfortable. Yeah, we're much talk. more accepting. Of yeah. Um, but it is, on an individual level, always going to be a challenge. So just as a hypothetical, say an 18-year-old... Um, boy or girl, man or woman, just finished school and they're identifying with some of the things we've spoken about today. Um, what would you suggest for them to do um, or where to go or what to read? I think the a personal relationship would be a great starting point. So a friend or a family yeah. member or um, someone who knows you well is a great person to be able to offload whatever it is that's going on. I think, and then you, I guess you... you hopefully we'll start to feel the, the weight lift a little bit from a from a professional sense and you may want to do this with um, a person someone you have a relationship with but you could go on your own start with a GP and I know that's some people have a GP a lot of people don't especially mm. 18 year olds or <laughs> people who might move from you know a fighting at the footy club I wouldn't know where to start in yeah. Um, and going to a new person to speak about things is very, very difficult. Yeah. But what a GP can do is um, provide advice and a mental health plan that will give you access to a psychologist for, I think it's now six or eight sessions um, yeah. that are subsidised, maybe 10 now, which um, is great, should keep going up. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the kind of thing that I'm suggesting, isn't it? That I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of that. That's that's very important. People don't know, yeah. and and I mean, this is I, I get calls all the time again because people know my yeah, of course. background. Yeah. That they just you know, they'll be like, I've got a um, colleague who needs help, and they don't know where to start. So you kind of it's you could spend a lot of time just researching where to go, and but it's not very clear when you just want to have one point of contact to go to. <coughs> And I should mention the, an organisation I used to work for and still really support Headspace as a 
12 to 25 year old that's an excellent starting point they have gps they have psychologists they have all these other supports in the one place um if you're not comfortable to walk into a center or pick up the phone there's online uh, mechanisms that you can sort of get advice from and um yeah so that's a fantastic support and question we are are getting somewhere aren't we we are but i mean i suppose the question on a (coughs) macro level uh, for both of you but uh you know, I like asking philosophical questions, but what is the key to happiness and how do both of you deal with unexpected, unfortunate events, I suppose? My, my big test is to say, can I do anything about this? And if I can't, I normally start to relax. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a little bit trite, but it's a, yeah. essentially that. Like, and that's, that's life. Like, mm. Can I do anything about it? Mm, maybe not. Well, I've got to either live with it or deal with it somehow. Mm. That's... It's my simple, not solution, but way of dealing with things. And there's a lot of things, you, yeah, you can't control. And I'm, as I get older, learning that more and more and mm. being able to let go of those things is, is key. I guess it's that age-old question around what's key to happiness where I think it, even shifting that and comes up in lots of things where it's about what's the key to being content. And um, yeah. I think that's a more valid question to not build up the expectation of, you do this and this, you're going to be constantly happy because you're always going to be have days and mm. periods where things aren't great. But if you have an overall feeling of this is my life's pretty good, and you have those positive things to look forward to, then I think that's probably the key, really. I reckon I've been really pleased with the movement over the last few years, where there's lots more talk about gratitude and all those sorts mm. of things where we that kind of wasn't in the lexicon yeah. before, but now yeah. like, oh, hang on you got to be grateful gratitude like, yeah, like, yeah. yes 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 <laughs> which I mean I, I always I'm wrapping myself up on it but I've always felt that mm. but a lot of people haven't and it hasn't been the story the story of a corporation wasn't that it was about make money do well kick someone's head be better whereas we're much more now about working together mm. Mm. Getting decent outcomes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which are, you know, I don't know whether that that happens in other countries, but I think we're pretty lucky. It's, it's, it's enjoying sense. enjoying the process. Yeah, and exactly. I always say something: uh, allowing yourself to feel, but like the emotional rainbow. Like the fact is, mm. we can't always be well. We can't always feel good and happy. There are going to be times when you can we're going to cry and all that. And being a man, I suppose, used to be sort of this stoic, <laughs> um, crocodile Dundee type. Yep. and now it's like well there's nothing wrong with crying and nothing wrong with expressing your emotions and feeling absolutely yeah. it's, um, <laughs> and I'd be interested uh, Neil I know that here you've done sort of mental health first aid I think across the whole organisation yeah. and it'd be interesting to hear what impact that has had on people and people's understanding yeah I think I think quite significant and, and I think it was even reflected in the way our guys coached and played this year. Mm. Now, maybe I'm kidding myself and making up the story to suit myself. But, it was, <laughs> but we feel that the greatest tool we've got in terms of mental health is providing an environment that the blokes can enjoy. Now, it's a high-performance environment. You've got to train hard. You've got yeah. some pain in it. But essentially, it's look out for each other, respect each other, have fun with each other, talk to each other. Don't, the coach doesn't bring you in and tell you your shit ass. He brings you in and says, you probably need to get a bit better. How can I help you? Mm. I mean, it's that we think that environment is the most powerful tool in mental health than anything else yeah. because it doesn't create those, you know, the gaps and the holes. And now there are some people who are still going to have issues, etc., etc. Yeah. But I think less, well, certainly less than we contribute to if we can. And, and it do, doesn't stop anyone from saying, well, the reality is if you don't play well enough, you'll, you'll eventually not be at the club. Because that, that's the reality mm. with everything. But you, that's got to be done. If it's done in a respectful, decent way, yeah. well, that's okay. And having programs, I suppose. For, yeah, to, and, yeah. To, and to do your best. And if you haven't, if you. If it doesn't work for you, well, that doesn't mean you're, you're no good. It means yeah. move on and do something else and be fantastic. As you said, your six years of the fantastic six years of being involved in a like you mm. can't buy that. No. So we treat treat that as a great opportunity <laughs> rather than oh, I failed after six years and I left. Well, yeah. it's like I've, I've got a friend who works at a high-profile law firm, 
and his hours are just absolutely ludicrous. He's eight to ten or whatever, and he's grad and he's just into his, his second third year, and he's burnt out completely. And I don't know what sort of systems they have in place that would actually support an industry where there is a very, quite a high suicide it's rate. Billing. It's billing. It's billing. Billing. Exactly. Billing yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with yeah, medicine doctors have a very high suicide rate, and it's mm. it, 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 a lot of it is that pressure and that mm. yeah, to make money and. Uh, don't plan on ever working in an environment where that's sort of the case but yeah. it, is, it yeah. is a societal concern that it's so well known how some of the organisations function um, and don't seem to be changing so yeah and they need to change and I, and I think that's one of the I'm really proud of the way footy generally has but certainly this club this year I think I think we've had a lot to do with the blokes I, feeling better about I'm, themselves I mean that's and, and, and oh and by the way we won well, I read that. Yes, it is. I mean, I, I think I mentioned the Conrad Marshall book, and really, obviously, you know, he's a journalist. I don't know; they probably show this, but I think he really got into the the club and the inner sanctum. And it really did show how much they put the emphasis on Emma Murray, who was coming yeah. in, the mindfulness coach, yeah. and mm-hmm. talking about uh, positive reinforcement and how yeah. they're going to play yeah. and visualizing and all that stuff that I could only imagine back in the day. You know, unless you were thinking of bowling a leg cutter, you weren't really visualising a positive yeah. moment happening. Yeah, and it's it was very, very strong. It was a very big part of the, of the program. And mm-hmm. if you speak to any of the players, they will say really significant part for them. Which is great. And I think that's a really good message for other organisations mm-hmm. to get. And I guess on the, um, the mental health first aid, as well as those other things, it's kind of, it may not reduce the number of people who experience issues, but as a whole, people that are equipped to... Yeah, it's not such a, oh, what happened there? It's yeah. Where you, are. you put your arm around people, help them. Exactly. Yeah, get, get in early. Yes, it's very important. I suppose where do you see the industry, or the mental health industry, but I suppose mental health in general, where do you see it going in the next 10 years? I think there'll be quite a few new treatments. I think that's um, working at um, the Alfred where we work now. There's some amazing work being done by research centres there and... Um, they just all take time though and I guess in, in 10 years time there'll hopefully be some you know, personalised treatments and people won't have to go through trial and error with medications and all that sort of stuff and be able to diagnose and um, predict things better. I think more importantly the attitude changes that are already starting to mm. shift will be will continue on the same path and it won't be about people who have experienced depression coming out and speaking about it it'll be everyone or not, probably not everyone but a lot of people <laughs> putting their hand up to say yeah, the this is okay this. Yeah, yeah and this is how I support <clears> it and, and just more like you said the information about how to access help and what you should do just isn't broadly known and I, it, given the work that's going in at schools and um, other places it'll be interesting to see that impact of sort of the next generation I yes guess. absolutely yeah um, well, yeah, we ask we ask a bunch of questions at the end of every show, Simon. It's called Pile of Weird Fishes. That was my weird name, but um, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> we keep adding to them every week. But um, yeah, uh, first one is, what do you fear? Um, I remember quick story. I remember writing down um, that in a Geelong bio that I feared failure. So I, was, I didn't realise everyone else is sort of taking the piss and putting um, right, yeah. you know, rocks or something and I've gone deep and, and um, yes, so I sort of look back on that and think oh, that, was, that sort of probably summed up where I was at at the time I was yeah. just wanting to do so well so now I fear um, not feeling content but yeah, so yeah. a shift yeah. on the, the failure thing. Did anyone put down uh, a fear of Max Rook after 12 beers? I, th- everyone should have put that there. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, some good memories flood back. Of yeah. He's a great man. <laughs> um, what do you hope for? I guess I hope for everyone in my life to have share similar feelings of contentedness. That's the right word. I think Feeling so. content, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm content with that. Um, what makes you happy? Well, <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think one of the things that I call it a strategy or a mindset, but was recognizing the things that make me happy, the small activities. And mm-hmm. I did this exercise with my psychologist where I'd um, take a photo when I was 
happy basically and, and or, or doing something that makes me happy so yeah. had all these photos of when I'm riding my bike and on a nice afternoon and it was more about reflecting on it being a nice afternoon rather than rushing to the next thing and yeah um so yeah activities like surfing and mountain biking and quite physical activities um <laughs> tend to be the things that make me happy and take my mind off things and sort of keep me keep me going um what makes you sad I guess seeing people who are struggling with with mental health issues that are so desperate to solve them like I was and are having that mm. that attitude it's it's a very difficult thing to change from a um, problem solving mindset to a managing and working out how to best live with um, the situation you're in so that yeah that and as I said a lot of people sort of come to me for a bit of advice and it's always sad when it's someone that I know or someone that, that they love so yeah yeah I suppose I just sorry to interject and interrupt the question I had a similar um, situation recently where someone messaged me and she was talking about how infuriated she was with her anxiety and it was ruining her relationship and that sort of thing and um, it what I my explanation was as well yeah you've just gotta this is something you just gotta learn to to manage and it's hard explaining that to someone but you're like it's not the end of the world yeah <laughs> and it's not the answer that people seek they you want that quick fix and that's completely understandable yeah it probably took me two years to realize yeah. the reason why yeah um, and be okay with that mm. um what album or book would best accompany your life story uh that's a tricky one i was just <laughs> thinking i from the book side i just finished the um Ministry of Utmost Happiness uh, by, I can't remember her name, the Indian woman, which is a really good book. Yeah. Uh, and it has <laughs> sort of this really interesting different elements to it that, you know, it's about Indian culture and mental health issues and transgender yeah, okay. and all this sort of stuff that, yeah, recommend that. I'd just probably not to do it with my life. Story, <laughs> but, no, I'll have the, I'll, I'll, actually, there is an album. I'll say... Um, Sound and Colour by Alabama Shakes. Um, not because it's my favourite album, but I remember in when I finished football, my time at Geelong um, took six months off, and I was in Europe at first and in Berlin, saw them live, and there was this kind of sense of... It was the first time I was like, oh, I'm not going back to what I'd associated with not mm. being... Um, a good time at that time a good time yeah. mentally um, and, so, and it was just my partner Kate and I and yeah so more for that reason I'll say that uh, what what gets you up in the morning um, usually my alarm gets me going um, <laughs> oh, sh- first time I've tried to be funny <laughs> <in this podcast. laughs> what was that <laughs> exactly <laughs> I was enjoying myself. Um, I think at the moment a sense of the sense of direction I've got with sort of I'm in a very I'm on a different career path now and I finally get a sense of um, responsibility and that I'm on a path that is bringing meaning to my life so it's kind of nice to have that back after a few years of sort of studying and working part-time and doing other bits and pieces so yeah I'll say that and finally what's your perfect uh, Sunday morning <laughs> I'll say a surf down in Lawn. I was there on the weekend and quite sunburned you know that is so um, yeah. lucky enough to get down there a little bit so a surf I could say followed by a mountain bike session that's probably too much activity so <laughs> a surf followed by breakfast with my partner Kate beautiful fantastic um, we're coming yeah, well, <laughs> welcome to Cal. Yeah, we, well, I don't think we, we wouldn't come for a perfect Sunday morning, though. I think that would I don't be. I think it. we would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we wouldn't consume. Maybe if we buy the breakfast, that's, that's <laughs> sounds like a good deal. <laughs> um, now I'm giving you a task uh, to listen to an album, Chloe uh, Backwater. I'm going to ask you at the start of next show. But uh, Simon, thanks so much for coming well, in. Not Alabama shakes. Not Al- well, well, you can listen to that. Listen. I, I think. recommend it. Picture <laughs> yourself in Berlin. At this, uh, I can. I, I can picture myself there. Yeah. Oh, Berlin. It's a great spot. But, it is um, a great spot. Yeah, Simon. What's uh, it called again? Uh, Chloe or oh, Backwater or <laughs> Alabama shakes. Oh, no, well, both of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the Alabama <laughs> shakes? Yeah. He's furiously taking notes. Um, oh, yeah. Beautiful.
but yeah, Simon, for, for the impact in my life as well, but just for coming on the show. It's not going too drastic, but yeah, uh, great, thank, great thanks for having a chat. Likewise. Yeah, well, fantastic. Uh, thank you. Great, uh, thank great you, chat. Thank you, Neil, and thank you, Andrew, and uh, good night. If you or anyone you know might be distressed from any of the points raised in this episode, then you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800 or Headspace 03 9027 0100.